0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Moradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, an update on Russia's war on Ukraine and a look at the week ahead with Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners. But first, joining us is Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, To address the unusual social media frenzy over the weekend, that suggested that Chinese leader Xi Jinping, who is about to be crowned as leader for life, was deposed in a coup. The speculation was, however, false, but did uh, take up quite a lot of time on social media. Uh, Patrick, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, Great to have you back on the show, especially since you joined us on Friday for what was a very action-packed weekend.
1: Delighted to be here, Vago.
0: But before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security, sponsors our weekly cyber report and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence and communications. sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Air Force Association's air, space, cyber conference and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Um, we thought it was important to have you back, uh, come back on the program because in the intervening weekend, uh, there was a lot of discussion uh, on social media about the impending uh, 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 ouster uh, of Xi Jinping, uh, that there was a coup uh, that was underway. Um, you know, clearly no coup happened. What exactly happened and how did all these hairs get running? Gordon Chang... Uh, wrote a provocative book uh, in 2001, if I recall correctly, sort of the coming collapse of China. And so folks were pointing that and saying, hey, you know, Gordon predicted this, uh, this would happen by November 22. Uh, it's, it's, it's now uh, September 22. So I see on the proximity side of things, and obviously, there's the big meeting uh, coming up as well. What, what exactly happened to set all these hairs running?
1: Well, over the weekend, you're right, there was social media speculation that Xi Jinping had been deposed in a coup, and this continued to grow until the evidence just failed to materialize. <clears throat> I mean, set in the context for this, since the Shanghai Cooperation Organization summit in Samarkand in Uzbekistan, um, you know, that was the last time Xi Jinping was seen in public. So there had been an absence of Xi in, in public. Uh, and you've got all these tensions swirling around the coming 20th Party Congress beginning on 16 October in Beijing. That's the, you know, twice a decade political event in China that really determines the future course of, of the leadership and the, and the policy. Um, and yet now you've got suddenly social media posts claiming that China's canceling airline reservations en masse. Uh, there are troops of, sort of vague troop uh, movement reports. Uh, they're unsourced they're unsubstantiated but just enough of an air of plausibility for a few China Watchers like Gordon Chang to retweet these stories um if nothing else just to chase them down and see if there was anything there and Gordon Chang you know has rightly noted that we don't really know what happens inside the Communist Party of China the CCP to most of us um and and he you know but he added fuel to the, this rumor by just simply by saying well where there's smoke there's fire you know that line vago uh just lit up uh, and made viral right. social media. So, so, so what do ahead. we?
0: So what? So what do we know? What What did happen? Right? How did How did this really? Like, how did these embers get started? And more broadly, what does it tell us um, about China and what? How little we actually know, perhaps.
1: In retrospect, of even a couple of days, it was obvious that uh, this started on a, a notoriously unreliable social media source. So um, there was nothing to it Um, and that the reports of troop movements might well have been nothing but the movement of troops or paramilitary forces in advance of the party Congress. There were no mass uh, plane cancellations. That was just a falsehood. Um, And all of these facts started to uh, sort of mount. And finally, Shenhua, the Chinese news service put out on Sunday a list of the 2,296 delegates who were invited to attend the 20th Party Congress uh, in support of Xi Jinping. And and Monday morning in Beijing, the People's Daily comes out and says, by the way, everybody needs to rally around uh, our core leader, Xi Jinping. So it's obvious the facts that Beijing saying, look, there's been nothing going on here. Um, And so what we have to take from this is that um, there's a lot of speculation about the future of China's leadership. And there's a lot of concern about it and anxiety. Uh, and social media is unfortunately, uh, is you know, more of an entertainment and misinformation uh, source as it is an information source. And, and that's that's one of the challenges of trying to follow it. You don't want to ignore it. But if you follow it and just listen to it, uh, it can lead you into rabbit holes and, and down a path of destruction. So I think here, um, the India media is, is interesting here, Vaga, because in India, They just had a heyday with these rumors. Uh, Even when the facts started to materialize on Sunday, they still wanted to report the rumor first because it was just too juicy a headline to spoil. And then they would say, oh, oh, nothing to it, by the way. But we thought we'd report first the coup and then "Oh, there's nothing to the coup. It's a lot of wishful thinking here going on. One of the issues here, I think, is that people assume that if Xi Jinping were not leader for life, in effect, because that's what's happening here. He's about to cross this threshold to this unprecedented third term. And he could go on to a fourth term and even a fifth term conceivably, people assume that if she were out of the way, we might have an easier time dealing with China. And while it might be true, it might not be true. The CCP has its own sort of policy direction and Xi Jinping is just the assertive head of it. It's not clear that they would be easier to deal with right now.
0: Uh, it uh, confirms the old journalistic adage, when in doubt, throw it out. Even if your mom tells you, check it out. Uh, and once, you know, and I think if more people had been a little bit more patient on it, but again, I mean, that's the nature of social media, right? Uh, the hairs start running uh, before you can you can tap them down.
1: A final thought on that, Vaga, was that on the one hand, we have to be careful. And by the way, most China watchers I know and respect were very cautious. Um, there were a few uh, interesting satirical posts even by people like the correspondent from Der Spiegel who was outside the uh, sort of Imperial Palace and, and um, you know, talking about, uh, uh, look at these troops and there were no troops, they were just people who were just you know, business as usual. But we have to be careful about when we finally do have sudden change or some even attack on uh, Taiwan, what will be the indicators that we see uh, inside China, um, including political change. And I think here we, we may be suffering from the boy who cried wolf you know, syndrome a little bit if we if we ignore some of these things. So running down social media rumors is not necessarily bad. Believing them, giving them credence before they're proven, that's the problem.
0: And the reason why we wanted to uh, have you on uh, a little bit, because this was such an interesting circumstance and how many people, how many knowledgeable people uh, were texting uh, us both uh, o- over the weekend, sort of saying like, hey, what do you, what do you make of this?
1: And Vago, before I go, this does suggest dissent. There's been dissent in China ever since they changed the law that allowed the leader to have more than two terms as the head of the party. And this could be continuing as we head into this 20th party Congress.
0: Patrick, thanks so very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure and look forward to discussing in greater detail on uh, Friday's show. Thanks so much. Thank you. And as it's Monday, joining us is Sam Bandette uh, of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow at the Center for a New American uh, Security and he's one of the world's experts, uh, leading experts uh, along with the CNA team there on the Russian military and unmanned systems in particular. Uh, Sam, uh, hope you had a great weekend and thanks so much for joining us.
2: Great to be back.
0: Uh, An absolute pleasure. Uh, You have been helping our audience better understand our Russian friends since 2016. Uh, And so we're continuing that uh, tradition. Vladimir Putin announcing not just the mobilization of 300,000 reservists, but that it could actually be a broader uh, mobilization, precipitated a a flight of men uh, from the country that don't want to serve. He is also, uh, there are two elections uh, that have been called in Donetsk and Luhansk to try to annex both of those, and make them Russian territory to somehow make them immune uh, from attack? U.S. officials and Ukrainian officials have rejected it. What does the mobilization tell us? And does the annexation of Luhansk and Donetsk really change anything, uh, turning them into Russian territory?
2: I think at its very basic purpose, the mobilization is meant to replenish the ranks of soldiers that have been lost over the past seven or so months of Russia's war in Ukraine. And mobilization can numerically fill the ranks, but quality-wise, there are a lot of questions whether the new recruits and the absence of a lot of weapons and systems or older weapons and systems in the hands of these poorly trained recruits, or in some cases untrained recruits, can actually make a difference. There's a lot of information that's emerging that is bypassing official Russian state media uh, about people's uh, discontent with the mobilization, about people's protests, about fights that break out when... um, uh, when the government comes to take away soldiers uh, to the recruitment centers, right. uh, men of fighting age are uh, leaving the country, those who can, uh, because there's a concern that borders may be closed to men of a certain age, right between 18 and 65. Uh, there, there's also evidence that's emerging that um, the training for these uh, newly mobilized recruits isn't going Uh, According to plan, it's in some cases, it's not going at all. There's a lack of uh, equipment, there's a lack of supplies, there's a lack of organization. And so there's a um, kind of a growing, slowly growing uh, sense of chaos as this mobilization is underway. It's not probably going to affect everyone because of such a large number of recruits that have been called up. Eventually, some of these units will be uh, sort of trained up to... um, the level where they can fight. But those units are going to be in the minority. I think the majority of those being called up really lack proper military experience to help make a significant difference. And there's also evidence emerging this week that Ukraine continues to press Russian soldiers, especially in the Donbass, that they are continuing their advance. Uh, some of the Russian units are retreating. Uh, and, uh, over the past several days, there have been excellent reporting by American media on some of the decision-making that went in the Kremlin uh, on how to conduct the war and how Putin is involved and how some of the Russian generals actually tried to counter um, some of the orders or, or tried to protest and couldn't. Um, right. As far as the voting in the, um, in the regions that Russia controls, there's also a lot of issues there. Uh, there's evidence that not everyone is voting Uh, that the voting turnout is rather low right now. Uh, Some people are afraid to vote. Some people don't want to vote. Uh, There's some evidence emerging that uh, uh, voters are going door to door with soldiers to make sure that people can turn out. And again, in some parts of Russia-controlled territories, they can achieve the outcome, but they probably won't be able to accomplish um, what they want just by asking people to vote because people are scared. A lot of people are confused. A lot of people don't want to take part in the political process. They don't personally agree with, but can't publicly uh, disagree with. Uh, And so this is going to continue, I believe, for the next several days. And by September 30th, there's supposed to be an announcement from Putin and from Russian government on the results of the referendums and on sort of Russia's uh, overall control of these territories, because the results, voting results, are obviously going to be favorable to the Kremlin, according to official statements. Uh,
0: and, and if you look at it right, I mean, a lot of the pro-Ukrainian Ukrainians have left, so the pro-Russian Ukrainians are more that's left, right, and, and, as opposed to the intimidation the Russians are doing. But does it meaningfully change anything on the ground? I mean, I think that Putin's desperate gambit is, I announce this, declare this Russian territory, then put a nuclear threat on it, uh, that if anybody violates an inch of Russian territory, uh, you know uh, the you know the the wind can blow in your direction too, and nobody seems to be taking that seriously, right? I mean, so does this effectively change anything on the
2: ground or the vector of the war? No, I think it's taken very seriously, right? Jake Sullivan spoke on Sunday, and he said that United States will respond appropriately if um, if there's a, a nuclear escalation by the Russian president. I think to Putin, there's a difference between his soldiers fighting on the contested Ukrainian territory versus fighting on the territory that's now Russia proper. And perhaps he is gambling on uh, the patriotism of many Russians who still support the war and support the president in uh, calling to the Russian population to help defend Russia proper, right? Um, And uh, there's still plenty of-
0: but, do, but does anybody believe that at that point Donetsk and Luhansk are really Russian proper, as opposed to annexed territory?
2: Well, look, uh, I, I think the best way to phrase it is: uh, first of all, it's an unfolding situation, right? A lot can change. There's a lot of factors involved, but there's plenty of people in the country, plenty of people in Russia that support the war, support the um, support the president, support Russia's conduct in the war, believe that what the president and the government are doing is right and proper and in Russia's best interest, especially in in people's interests. And I think this is where I think it would be appropriate to mention that while state media still has an impact on plenty of Russian citizens, the fact that there've been multiple alternative media channels over the past seven months, including Telegram and other platforms that uh, are giving Russians daily and hourly access into what is happening in Ukraine. And some of these, especially telegram channels, Russian telegram channels, are being brutally honest about what is going on on the front. And plenty of people were able to get news, not just from Russian state media, but from other media sources. And so plenty of people understand that there's a difference between just cheering the war that's happening far away and fought by a limited number of soldiers, and then suddenly having to participate in that war themselves knowing all the problems and issues that have been communicated very publicly. For example, uh, some of the Russian official media, regional official media, was very open and honest about problems experienced by Russian soldiers on the front lines. And we talked about this before, And when uh, regional governors actually spoke on the record saying that the soldiers they visited from their, uh, the soldiers who served from the region and the soldiers that these governors visited are talking about tactical gaps, uh, gaps in equipment, uh, right. The fact that Russian people had to fundraise all manner of equipment for the Russian forces indicates that there's broad knowledge that there are issues with how Russian soldiers are equipped, what they're lacking, what they're missing. So plenty of people understand there are issues with the war, but now there's a difference between supporting something that happens far away and actually having yourself or your son, your father, your brother, your uncle actually participate in that war, which isn't going according to plan.
0: Right. Uh, Let me ask uh, one more question. Last week, you discussed uh, how Iranian uh, unmanned systems could be changing uh, the dynamic. Vladimir Zelensky has asked Israel for uh, help. Israel so far, at least publicly, has been very uh, standoffish about that. Obviously, it has its own strategic interests in Syria that it has to take into consideration. But more broadly, what are some ways that Ukraine can actually counter some of these systems, which last week you indicated, were actually being successful against things like uh, uh, both the tubed artillery as well as rocket artillery that the United States and its allies have been providing Ukraine.
2: That's right. Over the past couple of days, more evidence have emerged that Russians are using Shahed 136 loading munition, which has been renamed into Gerain 2 um, by the Russians against Ukrainian stationary targets, against Ukrainian mobile targets. They struck Odessa, multiple times, and there's growing evidence that Russians actually have large numbers of these loitering drones that they can launch repeatedly against Ukrainian positions. I think this has always been the plan in um, acquiring Iranian drones to flood Ukrainian airspace, to saturate Ukrainian air defenses, to make it difficult for the Ukrainian air defenses to choose targets so that uh, these drones or follow-up action can actually destroy uh, targets on the ground, and Ukrainians have actually expressed concern obviously better air defenses would help, better electronic warfare defenses would help, but more broadly having a better understanding of what these drones are and how they operate also helps. And this is where Ukraine turned to Israel because Israel has been in the receiving end of Iranian um, attacks um, for for decades at this point. And uh, Israel has been gathering a significant amount of expertise on Iranian drone program, Iranian drone capabilities especially loading munitions. And uh, some of that knowledge is hopefully helping uh, U.S. allies in the region, such as Saudi Arabia, UAE, also uh, fight against some of these Iranian-made drones. Right. And so this is why um, Ukraine turned to Israel to help understand this threat, to help understand what they're dealing with. Uh,
0: and, and obviously Israel uh, having decades of experience, right? I mean, some very high-profile penetrations of Israeli airspace uh, That's right. over the years. Uh, and right. a lot of focus uh, on the part of the Israel Air Force, as well as the research establishment to try to counter it. So uh, we we hope that by one channel or another, uh, folks are uh, coming to Ukraine's help uh, at its uh, hour of uh, need. Uh, Sam, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Really appreciate it. Uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Margo. And joining us now, as he does every Monday, is my good friend Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners to discuss the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Uh, Byron, welcome back. And it was a real treat seeing you uh, at AFA last week.
3: It was brief, but very good, Vago. Uh,
0: Indeed. Uh, First, let's take care of old business before we get to your thoughts uh and and the week uh and the week ahead you started uh, last week in dc at afa then you went to the center for strategic uh, and international studies which had a current challenges of the industrial base event and you ended it up in california at a wharton event which was under chatham house rules so i know you're going to be a little bit measured in how you can uh, speak about takeaways from that you've written thoughtfully about all give us the takeaways from the csis industrial base event
3: well, look, it's it's been an important issue. It's obviously not just for the defense sector, but for um, for the U.S. economy in general, and frankly, for a lot of developed economies. And that is, you know, these supply chain issues that are still <clears throat> working their way through. And and I think, you know, the the people who spoke at the CSIS event, uh, Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and General Electric, uh, military aircraft, you know, their perspectives were. Kind of, hey, I I think we've got the personnel issue under control. We we know how to you know keep millennials happy. They're very motivated, you know, but they have different expectations and work life balance. But we can work that through. And I, I think the more interesting question was on this um, the depth of the supply base. And really, I think as one of the speakers called them the mom and pops, the smaller machine shops. Uh, that support the defense sector. This was really a manufacturing perspective. This wasn't about microelectronics or, or software, um, but I think, you know, my 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 takeaway from this is, it took us a while to get into this position. Um, right. It's really kind of a demographic structural issue that that's going that was evident and apparent well before the pandemic. The pandemic may have accelerated some factors that were here, but it's going to take some time for industry to dig out of it. And I think for me, um, it's going to be potentially a gating factor on defense spending increases in the United States, but it's also, I think, going to be an imperative that companies are able to articulate how they're addressing this issue because just getting up and saying, oh, we're going to go top line 5% a year for the next five years, I think a lot of investors, and analysts are going to kind of scratch their head and said, "Really, where are you going to get the people to do that?" And how's your supply base? What are you doing to help your supply chain uh, work through these issues? So uh, I commend CSIS for, for doing it, and I really thought it was a you know most these this the event is up on YouTube. It's it's probably very much worth a, a view for people who are interested in this particular subject.
0: Um, I I would I would uh, commend it uh, as well. Um, Give us a a little bit of a taste, because some of these issues also came up at the Wharton event in California uh, that you uh, attended. And one of the things we see uh, time and again is the United States is simply not producing the kind of talent that the nation needs, you know, when it when it comes to your average American. Actually, we rely extraordinarily so on immigrants, talented uh, immigrants. Uh, to come to the nation to do a lot of very important engineering jobs, uh, right? W- which, is, which is kind of a theme. What were some of the kind of broad takeaways from uh, the yeah, event? Because the, Wharton the, the, always brings together some very thoughtful minds.
3: So Wharton, you know, this is part of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, they have an aerospace community and they've been doing this particular event out in the West Coast for a number of years. It really focuses more on kind of the aerospace ventures part. So, it took place in Palo Alto um you know kind of the heart of silicon valley um and i thought you know people were very optimistic about kind of this national security space <clears throat> the opportunities that they saw to invest in it but you know th- there are some real challenges as well and i think um you know what, what a, a an issue is going to be this big focus on AI as a discriminator. Well, where are you going to get the people for that? You know, and and how many U.S. citizens are graduating from universities in the United States that uh, have advanced degrees in in artificial intelligence? So, I just think um, again, you know, we're, we're kind of back to we can talk about defense budget growth and security threats, but you know, the 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 underlying um, lattice work on which all this rests uh because of this event and because of the uh, csis event you know they're just reminders that uh these sinews of power really are going to need to be strengthened um and and it's not just about spending more money on defense it's really working on your your education system on your vocational training system and as i said it took us a while to get here it's going to take us a while to get out um uh, a little bit on
0: afa uh takeaways right i mean we've heard from uh you know we discussed it on the round table uh yesterday about you know the sort of granular news that uh richard uh picked up but from uh your sense uh
3: reading and reviewing the headlines i mean you know i was there for i really just worked the exhibit hall on monday afternoon so i did not hear a lot of the panels and leadership comments uh that were made over the course of the show so my perspective is really framed more by how it was reported and covered, and I frankly was a little disappointed that, <clears throat> particularly, Air Force leadership didn't didn't appear. Maybe they did talk about this, but it wasn't reported. Um, you know how how is the Air Force grappling with inflation and cost pressures? You know how really is the Air Force seeing? Um, these technology startups working into uh, the way they think about operations going forward you know what can they do to get around this problem of exquisite platforms um, in in smaller quality and I I just thought um, you know the continuing resolution issue you know maybe that's just a, a horse that's been beaten to death again but you know, here we are once again, Congress is on the verge of not passing an FY23 budget in time for the Department of Defense, you know, the kind of uncertainty <clears throat> that that plays through to, uh, to contractors, um, you know, I, I just think it may, maybe leadership was banging that drum <clears throat> or those drums. And it just didn't get picked up but but that may also be a problem in in messaging and communicating because you know when i see how the biggest some of the biggest news out of the show is the rollout of the b21 bomber i mean that's nice but that's highly cosmetic it, it right. doesn't really have any reflection on well how's the program doing is it in budget you know are right. you what are you thinking about the numbers of b21s you know how will it work man unmanned teaming concepts you know, all these things that are really important um, that need to be messaged not just to industry uh, but to the airmen and uh and the space force the Guardians um but our adversaries and our partners as well and and I I was disappointed I I'm, I'm hoping that Army leadership <clears throat> uh you know takes some better cues from uh really what I thought was a lack of substantive perspective news flow dialogue from from AFA and that the Army does a better job uh in in engaging uh, these issues, I
0: um I I I would I will say that uh, CR did come up in the general officer conversations, but I think Byron, there's a weariness uh, about it that it is what it is. Um, and on many things, we ended ran up against almost everything was a classification issue. Yeah. Uh, so really, like when you were trying to get a little bit of that depth, um, f- f- you know, almost everybody was talking in generalities or just flat avoiding. Um, many topics, but I but I appreciate what you're uh, what you're saying. Yeah, you know, there I was mean, I, of- I
3: understand that you know, and that also came up in the CSIS event where, <laughs> um, you know, one of the speakers talked about you know part of their engagement with their supply chain is to try and be as transparent as possible. I absolutely understand the need for um, for security. It also came up at the Wharton event, you know, but but there's a balance, and I think. You know if you over classify you you, you lose the messaging you, you lose all those efforts to try and engage a broader part of the industrial base and you lose messaging to right. adversaries and partners too uh
0: we've got about two minutes left uh you put a new note out uh today uh new defense demand themes from the russo-ukrainian war uh what are those uh new demands
3: well i think the first part is you know look You're probably gonna miss a a budget cycle with all these because the FY24 POM uh, is now being finalized in the Department of Defense uh, or be finalized this fall. So, and lessons learned take a while to really distill. I put a link in the note to actually uh, Institute for Defense Analysis report on the uh, 1973 Arab Israeli war that was dated October, 1974. So it's gonna take time to assess these things but you know, what's been on my mind has obviously been the use of drones and counter drone technology. Uh, I think that's gonna be a, an enduring theme here. I think the use of commercial satellite services is gonna be a, an enduring theme here. Uh, there was a GA report in September that, that called that out, that DOD need or really the national security establishment needs to do more. And I also think that there's just gonna be kind of back to basics, <clears throat> particularly for ground forces Things like bridge crossings, um, logistics, you know, how do you pre-position equipment so it doesn't suffer the same fate as ammunition dumps um, that the Russians established in, in, um, right. in parts of Ukraine or, or in Russian territory. Um, there are going to be a lot of lessons learned on this, and I, I think it's just important to keep kind of churning that that uh, that bowl to, to make sure that people are thinking about these and You know, it's not just the Department of Defense, but it's contractors. A lot of the uh, people who have um, calendar, you know, fiscal years that end in the calendar. A lot of companies that have fiscal years that end on December 31st are in the middle of their strategic plan. So they're going to be thinking about hiring and investing and what do they want to focus on? um, And hopefully some of them are going to lean into some of these requirements and, try and anticipate uh, a little bit more about what what customers would need. And I will say, you know, one of the things that struck me at um, AFA, there was an exhibit that Endural um, exhibited at the show and they had this mobile command post that was pretty interesting. You know, how can you do something that could be set up, you know, to, to I think it was 10 minutes after it was offloaded from a C-130. So, you know, to see these kind of um, Internal investments that lean into really kind of glaring needs that haven't necessarily been codified in requirement, you know, that's right. that I I would hope is what the DoD is going to encourage from contractors and then obviously provide them a way for the good ideas to actually uh, actually earn a return for for the companies that take those risks and investments. And
0: uh, we we've got uh, less than thirty seconds. Uh, what should folks be paying attention to uh, this week? Com-
3: yeah, Chatham House in London is doing a two-day conference on defense and security issues. Comdef this week, which is a kind of more of a boutique um, event on, uh, i call it transatlantic international defense cooperation. Jamestown Foundation, which doesn't always get a lot of attention, but I think does superb work is having an event on kind of the future of Russia, um, you know, and, and kind of thinking beyond just... Uh, you know the war, but but really, what what does Russia look like in the 2020s? And I think um, that's something that should also be on everybody's mind.
0: Uh, It's going to be very interesting, and the Atlantic Future Forum uh, is happening aboard HMS Queen Elizabeth, Britain's uh, the flagship of the Royal Navy. Uh, Very poignant that that it's that ship uh, that will be here and hosting that conference, and we will be uh, attending uh, and covering it as well. Uh, uh, And that should be our Thursday uh, program. Uh, Byron, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, Really appreciate it. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks very much.
3: Thank you, Vago.